Hi Ventures, welcome to another episode of Real Stories, a theatre and art series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each Real Stories episode theme tune is of course provided by our very good friends in Eka, and each pod we discuss my special guests' theatrical careers, the pieces of work that have meant the most to them, issues within the industry, and their mental health journeys. This is Real Stories. My special guest for this episode of Real Stories is a man who I spent a lot of my later adolescence and university years watching on TV pulling various political pranks on unsuspecting politicians and satirising the state of British politics in various sketches through one of his very famous shows in the mid-2010s. Hayden Prowse is a writer, actor, producer and was one half of BBC Three show The Revolution Will Be Televised, the name of which was a slight twist on Gil Scott Heron's song The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It won a BAFTA, a Broadcast Award and a Cannes Lion Gold amongst many other accolades. Alongside the show's co-founder and writer Jolien Rubenstein, the two caused absolute chaos amongst the British political parties, ensnaring the likes of former Chancellor George Osborne, MP Alan Duncan and many others. They also created various characters within the show to cause extra mischief. Jolien's character Daily Mail journalist Dale Maley turned up at various political events, essentially trolling unsuspecting interviewees, as he did with Zam Smith, a celebrity glamour-style metrosexual reporter who asked politically charged questions to celebrities who would have been expecting questions about their outfit or their latest album. After going to the US to bring their antics to our American compatriots, after becoming a bit too famous here... The pair went their separate ways and Hayden set up his own production company, Flying Shoe Films, where he has done advertising work for clients including Greenpeace, PETA, Heineken, Netflix, The English National Opera, Oxfam, Jonathan Pye, Amnesty International, Yahoo, Sony, Global Witness, Human Rights Watch, Warchild and more. He has also hosted and co-directed the BBC Do documentary The Town That Took On Taxman and was the reporter slash host on The Most Dangerous Town on the Internet documentary. He is currently producing a digital series for Channel 4 starring comedian, YouTuber and founder of Ultra Haze production company Alhan Genchai. So in this episode we discuss his journey into the arts and comedy, how he originally wanted to be a journalist before he veered away from it and into political satire, how he has moved away from social justice activism, identity politics and social justice oriented comedy and the projects he works on now. We also discuss how his identity became tied to his work for a long time and how that can be a common trope in TV and comedy. We discuss the mental exhaustion he felt from the fame of the Revolution Will Be Televised show and how he enjoys the work he does with Flying Shoe much more now he is behind the camera rather than in front of it. For Hayden's mental health, we discuss his sobriety journey and the issues he's had with alcohol, as well as his OCD, which he has had since childhood. So this is Hayden Prowse's Real Story. Hayden Prowse, welcome to Real Stories. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It doesn't feel too long ago that I came to a, a Q&A that you did at my old alma mater, Sussex University, as part of the revolution will be televised. That sounds that it seems like a very, very long time ago, mate. Um, first one, of all, how are you? The one in the big hall. Yes, it was in Farmer House. Yeah. All right. I hope it was educational. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good chat. It was a good banner. I oh, enjoyed good. it. Yeah. Okay. Great. How did you enjoy Sussex as a student? Uh, how did I enjoy Sussex? That is a good question. I didn't know how left wing it was going in, uh, which <laughs> which I found yeah. out very quickly. It was very great. I, did, I loved. I loved Sussex. I loved its bits. I had some very, obviously, as the listeners will know, some very uh, difficult mental health experiences, but it was also the best time of my life. I always found it slightly weird. I always tell this story. I lived in one of the most expensive blocks, which looking back now, £130 of rent a week. I was in Northfield. I swapped with someone. So I was originally yeah. off campus because Sussex was my insurance. Okay. And I ended up getting onto Northfield just like absolutely by chance. I was like a week away from dropping out, to be honest, because I was miserable. And then when I was in Northfield, there was people who lived who were like, private school kids or like went to quite expensive schools who were like bantering me about like why Northfield was posh and they lived in East Slope and like Park Village and I was like guys you went to four grand schools like please relax. um, (laughs) Sussex was full of posh kids that talk like that bro yeah and very political it's interesting you don't see much like a Sussex type normally you can tell them they're kind of like you know, an extension. North London school private school kids. (laughs) They're all wearing wearing sort of tie-dye and and, uh, professional activists. Well, my, um, 
All my Jewish friends in Sussex, I found out years later, used to call me Palestinian Hayden. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was part of the Palestinian Solidarity Society. <laughs> I was always rapping. I, I used to do raps about Palestine. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds very Sussex. It's so It was literally the most quintessentially Sussex thing. Did you go to Green Door Store on a Tuesday? That was the hipster's paradise. Which one was that? The club that was like night next to the Brighton Station, like under the oh, arches. I, don't, I, don't, I remember the hot house. Yeah. Yeah. Gypsy Disco was a big favourite of the hipsters when I was when I was at Sussex at right. Concord too. Casablanca's yeah. on a Wednesday instead of Oceana was he also a hipster's choice? Right. So. Yeah. No, I think I wasn't really. Hip. I was more of a rude boy, as you can. Oh, tell. okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, you can see, you can just tell, <laughs> can't you? Just from my voice. <laughs> I don't know what I was back then. I think I was a music nerd. So when people tried to like. Do you know when, like, at Sussex, they used to try and, like, give you an artist to see if you knew them? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I can list you the whole scene. So they didn't, people didn't really kind of check know. on me like that. They didn't try and set pace to me. But... Oh. Yeah, they used to be kind of like, oh, you're going to this, like, grime night. And I'd be like, why are all these, like, white, blonde, middle-class yeah. girls who clearly don't know anything about the MC here? <laughs> Have you seen, you know, Josh Berry? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, his middle-class grime character. <laughs> yeah. I wonder we to Brixton. <laughs> that was Sussex yeah I'm going to see Rico Dan tonight and then yeah. everyone was like who the hell is this guy but we're just going to go because it's cool and turn up in Harachis <laughs> <laughs> oh I loved Sussex anyway I digress massively we've got so much to talk about on this podcast mate and you've been a dream guest of mine to be honest for quite a while so without further ado are you ready to start the show Let's start right at the beginning and talk about your real story, Hayden. So firstly, what made you fall in love with, in your case, comedy, acting and the arts in general? Um, sort of just fell into it, I think. I don't know if I fell in love with it. In fact, I kind of wanted to be a novelist. I still actually do want to be a novelist. I'm a frustrated novelist. And then I kind of ended up, left Sussex and where I did philosophy and cognitive science and then ended up doing like a journalism course and found myself working for a sailing magazine of all things. Got to start I was, somewhere. <laughs> I was ed- yeah, I was editor of this sort of weird sailing magazine and then sort of fell into a job with Don't Panic, who at the time, they were a sort of kind of flyer company. People used to hand out flyers after clubs and Don't Panic with this like little brown envelope pack and they were really cool. And outside all the clubs, you had Don't Panic packs and they had all the sort of like, they had little fanzines in there and flyers for different nights. They'd set up a website and they were trying to get into content like everyone. This was such an age ago. It's nuts to think about it, but it was so recent. It was like 2007, six, seven. So, you know, YouTube was just just starting. Yeah. And people were sort of just getting into online content. Because you've got to remember the internet was only really six years old at that point. No iPhone either. So it was just the laptop, the family computer. (laughs) Oh yeah, completely. I had a Blackberry, I believe. The BB hype. Yeah, I got got into that late. (laughs) We were sort of writing articles and we were were being an online magazine basically. So I went to be be the editor there and then we started creating videos. And then I started kind of like everyone quickly realized that video was the thing that did well online. So making films like little stunt documentary films and that sort of progressed until it kind of became a bit of a brand and we were going out and doing things like going and like punking mps and bankers and stuff because it was the financial crash and everyone was really pissed off i don't know how old your listeners are they might not remember but there was the financial crash you had mps expenses which was MPs just claiming thousands and thousands of pounds for things like gardening and like champagne and shit. And everyone was quite angry. It was kind of the beginning of the sort of like disillusionment everyone now is sort of like so full of in relation to government and authority. People were like, what MPs were just stealing our money? What the bankers didn't know how to run the fucking economy and we had to bail them out. And so we sort of like went and did a bunch of like pranks and stunts and documentaries and you know we'd go like undercover with the bnp or go and like dig a hole in alan duncan who is an mp's garden because he claimed loads of money on expenses like i went and dug a pound sign in his lawn and planted pansies in it and he threatened to sue me then he didn't sue me and instead so he seemed like a jolly good sport invited me into parliament because the anger at mps was such at that point that had he tried to sue me for basically like fucking up his garden he would have looked like the dick (laughs) he invited me into parliament and then i secretly recorded him saying a bunch of shit 
and he got fired as his job because he was supposed to be responsible for expenses reform at the time and he was saying all sorts of wild stuff to me about how MPs were treated like shit and lived on rations and who would have known flash forward to today 2023 and MPs are now on I believe almost 20 grand more than they were back then most other people's wages have shrunk in real terms as people like to say in real terms so yeah that's how I got into comedy basically making documentaries that were just silly because I realised that making actual docs is quite boring. Before we talk about RWBT, because I can't be bothered to say the acronym every single time we have mm. this interview, you spoke off air to me about the importance of finding purpose in life. And this is quite an important thing for men in general, and not just mm. in the industry. So how did you go about doing this for your career specifically? I think I was really struggling at the age of like 26 because I'd left uni and I was working in this job as an editor of this sort of sailing magazine. I was, I was in Cambridge and I was tra- traveling to Cambridge every day. And I kind of felt like, you know, I wanted to be this, a writer and I didn't feel like I could do it. And I had this sort of like realization for the first time in my life that maybe I was just like a really average failure that would never do any of the things that I wanted to do in my life. And I think like for guys, that's quite a big thing because I think generally you're not conscious of it, but you're brought up your entire life being told through the media, through your social groups, through your parents, through just every everywhere that as a man, you kind of particularly, I think this is the same for women too, I think, but I think it's particularly strong for men. You have to achieve some kind of financial success. You have to achieve some kind of like position in society. And if you don't, it's really an existential thing, I think. If you feel like you're not doing that, it's very easy to have a bit of a crisis. And I think I was having that. And I think I'd been really political at uni and like I'd been Palestinian Hayden <laughs> and cared about issues and cared, cared a lot about the environment all my life. And was you know, a little annoying kid doing petitions and shit at school for the environment. But like, I think this, this sort of activism gave me that purpose as well from a sort of very personal perspective. And when I went and did all those activisty things, like fighting back against the power of these corrupt MPs, and then it became popular, you know, and people were sort of telling you how great it was. The political became personal, so it became mm. your story and it became your reason for getting out of bed, basically. Yeah, exactly. In the morning. The show, which I mentioned previously, put you on the map. And your first big break was BBC Three taking a chance on you and your co-writer, Jolene Rubenstein. It was your baby. It was called The Revolution Will Be Televised. So take Mm. me back to the commissioning process, if you can remember, because on the surface, this show must have been a fairly big risk, given what you Mm. eventually got up to and the fact it was on the BBC. Did you at the time have a self-awareness of that ironic political dynamic, giving you a pitching a political comedy show on on an outlet that was politically impartial? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But the BBC is, yeah, I mean, the BBC is kind of the sum of its parts. Like people always get confused about the BBC, I think, in the sense that everyone on the left thinks it's too right wing and everyone on the right thinks it's too left wing. But actually, it's just the people that make it up. And it's changed significantly since I was there. But Even since I was there, and that was two years ago. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. What department were you in? I was in the BBC press office, mate. Right. right. <laughs> so any cock-up was, I was right. getting a call about right. it. Okay. Well, how long were you there for? 18 months. 18 right, months. Right. So I was there when Tony Hall left. Right. I was there when the N-word crisis on Points West happened. Oh my God. I was so there when to, Tim Davey came show. in. So all sorts of stuff. Lots to sweep up. Lots of statements to put out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a risk, I guess. Cy Bennett and um, Sean Hancock, who are our commissioners, were just like super cool. I think the way it generally works at channels and at the BBC is if people, if commissioners want to do something, it happens. And it was very much their baby, not the BBC's. And Cy Bennett was a sort of rising star as a commissioner and so was Sean Hancock. And they kind of wanted it. They kind of willed it into existence. Some of the things you did on that show, I'm, I'm not sure in today's social media age you might be able to get away with. So, for example, you gave then-Chancellor George Osborne a GCSE maths textbook. Mm. You dressed up as a traffic warden and you went to mm. the Finnish and German embassies, clamped a couple of uh, diplomatic yeah. limos and tried to collect unbacon gesture charges. Yeah. And then you also played a fake Liberal Democrat MP called Barnaby Plankton and yeah. tried to get Vince Cable to give you a latte. At the yeah, time, was- did you feel fearless? Maybe invincible, maybe? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, our whole job was a very weird experience because our whole job was about going out and doing things like that. And it was kind of odd because we were kind of adrenaline junkies for about mm. six years because... It's like every... balls of steel, but political. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like the balls of steel show, but political. Like you really were playing with fire. <laughs> yeah, it was. like Yeah, I mean, I was like... We got into the Saudi Arabian embassy and wandered around with a glass ceiling to install on the first floor to stop women rising above their station. We were like, <laughs> we were in, yeah, like you said, George Osborne in Mansion House, like sneaking into things or being in things like loads of like filming from across rooms, chatting to politicians all radio mic'd up and doing big stunts, standing up. Bill Clinton, I remember in the last one, the sort of apogee of the whole thing was nailing bill clinton in america which was shit like this would happen so I'll tell you this anecdote it's quite yeah, go on then so we we're in i can't remember where colorado i think and doing the third season and bill clinton was talking at the clinton foundation event and my character barnaby plankton the liberal the idea was as part of the storyline i was going to go and ask bill clinton for some advice and the line was that i was going to do to him was uh, bill Hi, I'm a Liberal Democrat from the UK, because remember the Lib Dems got into bed with the Tories. So the line was, Bill, I'm a Liberal Democrat, and um, we've got into bed with a party that mm, perhaps we shouldn't have, and they keep forcing bills down our throat and taking us to the dry cleaners, if you get my jizz. <laughs> Do you have any advice for someone like me? And um, so that was the line. And um, the first day he was talking, and in this quite small room, and the camera crew were like shooting from the back of the room. And the idea was I'd sit in the front row and then I'd run up to him afterwards and say these lines and they'd get me on the radio mics and film and they'd film me doing it. And he got off stage and I kind of ran towards him. And obviously two Secret Service guys like grabbed me and like banged me up against the wall. Like, what the fuck are you doing, man? And I was like, oh, um, oh no, I'm a, I'm a liberal. I, I know him from the UK, like we're friends. I was just coming to say hi. And they're like, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. And they sort of let me off. But after that, the um, press team at the Clinton Foundation were like super on our case and didn't allow us to kind of get near him. And they banned us from any of the rooms with cameras. So we got into this one big room for his last speech on the final day. And all the time you're sort of making the show, like bear in mind, if you don't get this hit, you're missing a whole scene from the episodes. So the pressure to kind of get it is massive. And we sneak into this room with me and a couple of producers and they're holding action cams, which are these little cameras that you hold in your hand and they kind of come out, you wrap your hand around and there's just a lens poking out of your hand. And they also broadcast the footage to your phone. So you can look at your phone in your left hand and be filming with your right hand, which is great because everybody looks where your vision is going, not what your hand is doing. So it's super discreet. So we got into this room and we walk up to the stage and like five of the press team stand in front of me to try and stop me getting to Bill Clinton because they know something's going to happen. And then he gets off the stage and I sort of just run towards them and like run past the five different press people, get past all the press people. And then the two um, secret service guys grab me again and bang me up against the wall again. Another one goes, oh no, it's okay. It's the liberal guy from yesterday. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they brought me up past the press people to Bill Clinton. And they, I was like, I just wanted to talk to him. And they brought me up to him. That guy's now fired. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, you know, they're taking us to the dry cleaners if you get my jizz, Bill. And Jesus then, Christ. He, was, he thought it was very funny. How did you adjust to doing TV work on camera so quickly? Was it a sink or swim type scenario? Or did that purpose from social justice kind of activism just propel you towards it? I don't know. I sort of I feel like I wasn't actually that... I don't know, when we first started making the stuff online, I was direct. I was producing, directing it all. And in fact, Jollyan was. I was kind of just starting to do a lot of undercover actually, and like Jollyan was kind of like doing a lot of the performance stuff, and was kind of happy going in that direction. But then had to kind of be on camera. I don't know. I, I think I found being on camera a lot more difficult than Jollyan. I did kind of like wasn't my natural home and mm. didn't enjoy it as much. It's a weird thing. Everybody Did, seems to do it now. Everybody's on camera because everybody's on social media. It's odd. Was there a moment where you felt like because you were getting more known and therefore that's why you probably did the series in America that you felt you had to keep doing bigger and bigger and better in order to maintain that level of shock value? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You had to keep going, keep going bigger. You also won a BAFTA. 
Yeah. So how big a moment was that in your life? I know sometimes these award shows can be a bit of a circle jerk and I became disillusioned with that element a long time ago in mental health. But how big a moment was it for you considering how big a BAFTA is? Yeah, it was a big moment, yeah. I actually lost it on the night that I won it. <laughs> um, I think I was like dancing and left it on the side of the dance floor and then when I came back it had gone. Someone um, nicked it? Yeah, I think it was made in Chelsea. Wow. Yeah, because there was... Alleg- um, alle- allegedly made in Chelsea stars, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly. There was like yeah. 20 of them and you only get given out like three, four BAFTAs max. And I think a bunch of them were like, we won, but I don't have a BAFTA. So they were like, oh, free BAFTA. Well, there's some entitlement for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's move on from the show because a lot of the politicians you targeted were conservative as the government was for the time but for the balance you also pissed off quite a few Labour MPs and and Liberal <laughs> Liberal Democrat grandees too yeah. so you ended up moving away from social justice politics and activism and I remember following you on Twitter and actually being able to map the disillusionment <laughs> through your tweets oh, really? so tell me about the move from your perspective what caused you to alter your way of thinking I think social media just became a really unhealthy place didn't it and mm. I just found myself witnessing a lot of social justice that wasn't really about what it was purporting to be about so it ended up being about the algorithm and i think people are realizing this now right shit posting like, yeah, yeah 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 like it was about followers and it was about likes and it was about self-promotion it wasn't about the thing it was pretending to be about and it was just left a really nasty taste in my mouth and i think it's what politics has now become it's what so it's what you know online debate has now become it's what a lot of social justice has become unfortunately I also you know before I did revolution and all the way through revolution and even now like I do a lot of campaign films so I make films for like charitable organizations and yeah campaigns and there's a lot of stuff that goes into that from a production and from a sort of creative and a strategy perspective right like a decent charity will have a goal for a thing they want to achieve and they'll build a campaign around it and then they'll look back at the kind of metrics for what they achieved and did they achieve their KPIs and all that kind of stuff. And none of that stuff existed in sort of like freelance, like vigilante Mm. social media, social justice, because people were just out there like running campaigns, their own campaigns to do this or that. And some of it was great and probably had a really positive impact. But I think some of it really had a massive backlash. And I think a lot of the divisions that we're seeing today was partly as a result of really ill-thought-through kind of things that well-intended online campaigns that ended up pissing people off or ended up sort of just being a bit divisive. And I don't know, I always sort of say that if you think about all this stuff really took off in like 2015-16 right and are we in a nicer safer happier more environmentally friendly world today after five six years of social media social justice campaigning than we were back then no we're not so like on that basis it hasn't achieved its kpis so if we really care about social justice and you know, the environment and all these things, we have to kind of ask ourselves if what we're doing is actually effective. And I think most social media campaigning, unfortunately, actually hasn't been. When I was more ensconced in the political cycle, when I was at Sussex and engaged through my university years, my early 20s as well, I got triggered by nonsense quite easily. Mm. And now I've done so much work on my mental health I'm fairly detached from it. My mental health is much better. I'm still on Twitter all the time, but that's because I normally have to find guests and you know mm. topics to cover and stuff like that. Have you seen a change in your mental health because of the positive changes you've put in? Yeah, I think staying off Twitter is key to positive mental health, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think some people are built for that stuff. Some people really like being on Twitter and arguing all the time. Some people don't. I don't get I that at all. Maybe yeah. if that's you, maybe do it. <laughs> but... It just never helps. I just feel like there's no nuance. There's no tone of voice. There's nothing like, so yeah, I, I don't I don't try to do it. Maybe the problem though is that people aren't seeing it for what it is. It's like, it's a computer game. And yeah. some people are really good at that computer game. And some people don't enjoy playing it. And if you enjoy playing it, get on. And like, But also like, people need to stop seeing it as anything other than that. It's not a public forum for debate. It's not the Acropolis in ancient Greece where the philosophers used to go and chat about philosophy. It's a mm. fucking 
computer game. You're playing an algorithm. Before the advent of social media, I guess social justice activism had some level of clout involved, but maybe not the level of clout that it does today. And I feel like some elements of it are more derived from, say, achieving social capital than, say, achieving Mm. a social cause, you know. Mm. And also, I think you add into the fact that a lot of the videos from some of these groups, the people just seem clearly mentally unwell. You know, I'm thinking of some of the Just Stop Oil videos and some of these young protesters, and they are clearly Mm. not okay. And there doesn't seem to be, there seems to be recognition of it from right-wing outlets, but that's purely because they're just against the cause. And There doesn't seem to be sort of nuanced take about, Maybe we should be helping these kids kind of sort their mental health out and then kind yeah. of get them to a stage of balance and then assess where they are instead of these kids chucking themselves into these causes and now they're looking seriously unwell. Did you see those videos of those people lighting themselves on fire? Roger Hallen, who is or is the guy who founded Extinction Rebellion and went on to do Just Stop Oil and various other ones, is quite a divisive character in the environmental Mm. protest movement. I mean, I was like there at the beginning of Extinction Rebellion. I've helped them organize protests. I'm like, environmental issues are a big thing for me. And I care about that and them a lot. And I see someone like Roger Hallam and how divisive he's been for the environmental movement. And yeah, 100%. What's that Michelin web sketch where they're like, like, we've got skulls on our caps and um, we're... we're... (laughs) That's a meme now, isn't (laughs) it? Are we the baddies? (laughs) Are we the baddies, Yeah. yeah. Like Roger Hallam is like, he looks like fucking Sauron. He's got a long beard <laughs> and he's got a bunch of teenagers that are setting themselves on fire on his behalf. Is there no point where he looks in the mirror and says, am I a cult leader? <laughs> mm. The girl on the bridge, do you remember the girl on the bridge who chained herself to uh, the yeah, motorway yeah. bridge and she yeah. was like crying on the camera and I was like, I don't know if you're trying to bully people who are watching or you're unwell or both, but oh clearly this girl needed help. This is the point I was just making, right, about let's really think about what that does for the environmental movement. I don't know how you calculate that, but I'm pretty sure that most normal, average working people that I spoke to despised any environment. Like, we're like, that pissed them off so much. This yeah, posh girl yeah. standing on a fucking motorway stopping, like, working people getting to work and during a cost of living crisis was such bad PR. Locking the cars as well was not a good look. Do you remember oh. when they all sat in the road? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're still doing that to some degree, but yeah. yeah. I remember one I remember one geezer who was like, fuck off, and just pulling them. And it was, the yeah. caption was like, this guy's fuck off was laced with stress. And I was like, it's so good. I mean, the thing is, is when Extinction Rebellion first did that, it was done really well. They shut down all of London. There was a lot of tolerance for it because it hadn't happened before. It felt like an exceptional event. It was full of joy. Like you went down to central London and they'd locked the whole thing. There wasn't the anger back then. Like it felt like a festival. There was like a gig, an Oxford circus. They had a boat. Like it was kind of amazing. And the purpose of that was to kind of raise the alarm because at that point, no major party had a net zero policy. And a year later or a couple of years later, they all did. So it achieved its goal in many ways. And like, like I said, like with a lot of these sort of like meandering vigilante movements like that, there was no one, there was no central authority to turn around and say, we need to change our tactics because if we continue doing this, we're going to lose a lot of the social capital we got in the first place. Yeah, the, and the, I was yeah, blocking the trains was not a good look for that either. Do you yeah. Remember? yeah, the canny when there was, they that blocked was so you the Jubilee line. I was like, that is the stupidest thing you could have done. Yeah, <laughs> I know. All these like... <laughs> People, blue collar workers trying to get to work, yeah, pulling well. like some jihadi Jemima off the top of a train. Like. The best quote I saw was like, there are drug dealers and builders who are getting on these trains at the Jubilee oh, line. Yeah. You will not be, you will not be stopping that train. <laughs> drug dealers and builders. It's cannon down at the Jubilee line. You know. Oh, so, so good. So good. Some of the tweets always kill me, man. That is the good thing about Twitter, actually, is like mean tweets. You said to me that you were questioning if you were pushing something because it feels good instead of it being the right thing or even effective most of the time. Mm. So what was the answer that you found? The answer was I, that I found was to sort of to just be a bit more specific about what I got behind or talked about. I don't know. I think the way social media works is that you have particularly Twitter is you have to subscribe to all of the beliefs of a political POV. And if you do that, the most vociferous person that does that wins the algorithm. If you want to win the algorithm and you want to get more followers and you get want to get more retweets, 
you can't question any of those opinions. You can't have any sort of like critical dialogue around them. You have to just go all in. And it means that you have you have to kind of subscribe to a suite of opinions if you're on a, a partic- particular political... Same for mental health, mate. That's why I moved away from a lot of the mental health community. Yeah, for mental health, it's really bad. And also, I can't imagine it helps nuance in your life no. and the understanding of your life as well. If, you're, if your politics is so binary, everything is right and wrong. That's not what life is. Yeah, because then you lose track of what mental illness really is. Like I interviewed Freddie DeBoer, who's a journalist, and well, not journalist, he's a writer, in my last episode. And he talks a lot about how he's kind of sick of a lot of the the talk around mental health because mm. people say people with mental illness can never be violent he's like well actually if you're seriously mentally ill yeah your propensity for violence and yeah. you know outrageous behavior or saying outrageous things if you're schizophrenic or if you have all these yeah. really serious stigmatizing mental illnesses that can actually be a thing so to say oh no one who's mentally ill can never do that is actually a lie so he was kind of sick yeah. of it. and he had a psychotic break and he did all sorts of stuff people can go listen to that like he did all sorts of stuff when he was really, really ill and he kind of got semi-cancelled for it. But that's what he wanted to try and achieve, basically. What did he want to achieve? He wanted to achieve like a greater sense of nuance in the mental health conversation. Good people yeah. can do very bad things when they are mentally ill. Well, this is the sort of weird paradox around this sort of generation of people who are on one hand, like super keen on like getting people cancelled if they say and do the wrong thing. But then there has to be all this tolerance for mental health problems because, yeah, people who are mentally ill do bad things <laughs> they're really unpleasant a lot of the time and there's zero tolerance for that now but there is supposed to be tolerance i mean i don't know what they imagine mental health issues are actually like it's just there's only one suite of mental health issues that you're supposed to have acceptance for and that's the ones where you lie in bed and you just get really depressed and mm. can't get out of bed but there's yeah like you say like you know like people with addiction like gambling they steal money from steal their money friends from their they family. steal yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so yeah, if you're violent schizophrenic, it's like you can't control yourself and you're out doing really horrible things. Yeah, so there we go. Before we move on to Flying Shoe, you and Jolene have gone in very different directions politically and in your careers since RWBT. Jolene has, I'm sure you'll probably admit this, stayed on the social justice train, which he's perfectly entitled to do. You haven't. Did your relationship contribute to that change? Has it changed because of that or or not? I mean can't really speak for him but I think I mean the thing, the thing is I, I still do do social justice stuff or justice stuff I still make films for campaigns and charities and you know like I just don't I don't know like I just don't subscribe to a lot of the beliefs that seem to be particularly trendy right now but I mean I think that's just normal and healthy and it's like I disagree with Jolien on a bunch of stuff and it's just a sort of different in perspective I guess the thing is I agree with Jolien politically on a lot of stuff still it's just that those sort of little nuances now are kind of seen as, I don't know, like I feel like 10 years ago, like small differences in opinion were sort of accepted. You could be broadly part of the same political church and have those types of agreements. Whereas a lot of people think I'm a Tory <laughs> now because, you know, I think the Tories have fucked this country up deeply. It's been awful. I mean, just look at our country right now. It's broken. On so many levels, Brexit, cost of living crisis, all this stuff. And, and yeah, I'm fundamentally, profoundly not a Tory. I've never voted Tory. But also... You got into uh, on GB News, mate. You're a Tory now. <laughs> I've been on GB News, exactly. So you're a Tory. That's another weird thing. People say to you, how could you go on GB News? That is like, hold on a second. Like, isn't the thing that you always talk about the freedom of press in this country and like the profound privilege that we have to be able to speak our minds on lots of different platforms. And also, wouldn't you want a lefty on GB News? Which Andrew Doyle is, by the way, who you interviewed by. Yeah, Andrew Doyle is, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't you want a lefty talking to all the right-wing audience of, G- of GB News and giving them left-wing opinions? Like, surely if they just have a, a solid diet of Nigel Farage, they're just going <laughs> to get become even more right-wing. I don't understand. It's so odd to me why people would say, don't go on GB News. Like, what is the thinking behind that? It's it's fucking mad. <laughs> it's fucking mad. Do they think that everybody talking in their little, like, echo chamber silos has been good for the country? Like, if they really think about it, do they think that's been, like, a positive thing for the nation? It's odd. Uh, yeah, everybody should go on... Your responsibility on social media should be to speak to the people on the other side of the fence in a compassionate way to try and change their mind. Not 
to kind of broadcast your opinion to your audience for fanfare. That's what's fucked us up. Let's talk about your new baby now, Flying Shoe Films. So <coughs> tell me how and why you started it, what you wanted to achieve with it, and maybe your proudest achievements during it. Yeah, I mean, just going back to production, basically, you know, the thing that I got into content making and media and comedy doing and it's a production company and yeah it's great going well make it just made a show for channel 4.0 with alhan genja in it it's all right to be white which is really fun and, um, <laughs> that's a classic alhan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alhan trolling people which is yeah. his, his superpower yeah and just making a bunch of more stuff for, for them hopefully and making yeah making other things adverts and various things campaign films and yeah it's good mm. being um adulting before we finish and reflect on this journey i just want to talk about a couple of things in the industry you wanted to talk about so the first is work-life balance but less so in the traditional sense and more to the extent to which you separate your work from your personal life so tell me why you've struggled with that in the past yeah i think it's quite easy to kind of like define yourself through your work right and i think i don't know for me doing something that i felt mattered and having some kind of level of personal success was like key to my mental health and that kind of also meant that I sort of bound myself to my career quite deeply so everything was bound up in that that also meant that I didn't allow myself to kind of have much time away from work and to kind of build anything around that that gave me a sort of solid basis for my mental health and I just think yeah yeah you kind of have to be careful of that I think like there's a lot of sort of preeminence placed on being career successful in life. The second issue you struggled with is feedback. And I imagine this can be pretty difficult at times in the industry because not only of rejection, but, you know, you could get amazing feedback on a concept from one commissioner and then mm. be told it's a complete load of crap by another. So how do you manage that from a mental health perspective? Yeah, feedback is, is um, I think I'm more and more up for listening to it and open to it and I think the things that I do are better as a result I think getting feedback on anything you do as early as possible is super important I, th I feel like I've realized that the main impediment that I've always had to kind of doing the things that I really wanted to do in my life is just fear and like you sit down and you try and write something you sit down and you try and build something and like all of those distractions that kind of like divert you away from it are based around fear I feel like it's like if you go on your social media and check your Instagram if you go off and make a coffee or and don't focus on the task at hand it's not that you're just distracted in a really superficial way it's quite profound the reason you're going on your social media is because something in your head is saying you don't have the capacity to do this you don't have the ability to do this divert yourself with something small which sort of distracts you from the really scary thing which is doing it doing the big thing and then failing and I feel like for me, like I've realized that getting feedback and not being afraid of it as early as possible is really important because as long as you can kind of take it on board and change and work out what's good feedback and what's bad feedback and incorporate the stuff that's good and not the other, the other stuff, then you kind of like, you build something that's bigger and stronger. There's a guy called Nicholas Taleb. Uh, yes. Anti-fragility. Um, I've read it. It's a bit of yeah. a tome. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, I think it's very impactful book for me because it's a kind of economics book isn't it but it's also like weirdly a self-help book and the concept of anti-fragility is I think really useful for people now because it says very that good. you have to constantly test the world in order to work out how to navigate it so it's about failing fast what's the google thing failing fast fell fast fell often or something, something like that you got constantly like test the waters and it's all information and you have to not see those failures as failures, but just as information, because after five failures, you'll see a success and you'll be like, that's the route that I need to go. Whereas if you sort of insulate yourself and you don't allow criticism and you don't allow yourself to be challenged, then you'll create something in a, in an echo chamber, in a sort of silo. And then when you eventually bring it into the real world, it will be fragile because it won't have been tested. And you'll be fucked afterwards. Yeah. 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 He's quoted a lot in loads of books, Nassim Nicholas Talib, and I remember reading at Anti Fragility. I kind of took the message of the book by the first 50 pages, and then I just mm. read the uh, the rest of it for closure. But <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's sort of describing the same thing, isn't he? Yeah. Through. He hates iatrogenics, doesn't he? Absolutely right. hates it. Iatrogenics, yeah. That's yeah. when. He's on about it. 
medicine causes more problems than it solves. Yes. Yeah, is... I think he referenced like Michael Jackson's death as an example, didn't he? He was like, oh, Michael Jackson died and allegedly like because of the yeah. doctor and allegedly and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, this is a bit of a tangent, but whatever. I'll run with it. Yeah. The final issue you wanted to talk about, mate, is the impact of fame and how it affected you whilst you were in the throes yeah. and, and the highs of RWBT. So how did you deal with it when you started to get a bit more spotted, shall we say, on a daily basis? Yeah, I think generally, almost universally, being even remotely famous has a negative impact on people's personalities. Like, <laughs> almost always... Shock. <laughs> people, shock horror, become arrogant assholes. And I think that some of them come back from it and people, you know, very wise people probably sort of manage to navigate it. But it's hard for it not to have that effect on you it's interesting because i feel like we're living in this world now where 50 years ago a very very small number of people in the world were famous you know yes. the, the people that were in hollywood that we all watched on our tv screens even writers and you know like very successful film directors weren't famous in that in that same sense they had a sort of an anonymity that allowed them to kind of just be normal a lot of the time and now we're sort of living in this world where hundreds of thousands millions of people self-identify as famous because of social media and it's like living in a world with millions of Marilyn Monroe's and what happened to people like Marilyn Monroe they all have massive mental health problems because of their narcissism and various other things and their fame and you know a lot of them die young and like I think this big mental health crisis we're experiencing has a lot to do with that because everybody thinks they're famous <laughs> You know? Yeah, and there's also a really bad conundrum where people get too famous to do normal things, but not with the money that comes with it because they're on social yeah. media and they're influencing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah so it can almost true. cause a resentment because you're, you know, you're rolling around and you're probably getting spotted by people and your daily life is impacted, but you're not getting the cash to offset that. Yeah, yeah. And it does this weird thing where, particularly if you have a lot of followers, I think something negative that I experienced when I was famous was. Because there were so many, like, or relatively famous, but because there were so many, like, opportunities at your fingertips, you could kind of go out and go to a bar and, like, people would know who you were. And they were like, oh, my God, it's you. And then you'd be talking to someone that you'd never met before. Or, like, you know, people inviting you to parties. And there's just all these sort of things around you all the time. And because of that, there isn't the sort of same pressure to kind of build and maintain long-term personal relationships because you can be quite transitory and that just means that if there are problems in long-term which there always are in like long-term friendship relationships family relationships there isn't the same incentive to stick around and sort them out and weather them because you can just go to the bar and there's like five people they'll know who you are and you can hang out and and I think social media does that as well you don't need to put in the work you can just go and find a bunch of friends online if you've got 30,000 followers, you know, and like mm. people think you're a bit fit. I think it makes relationships less profound. How do you feel now that you do most of, if not all of your work behind the camera and off screen? Yeah, you I feel better? I'm happier. I think I'm happier. I think it was a bit hard actually like redefining who I was after all that time of being on camera and that being who I was. But I think ultimately I'm happier because if I make something, it's about the thing I make, it's not about me. I'm not like muddying it. It's like, I know if I make a show, you know, the Alhan show, I know that it's something I've created with Alhan, but it's something I've created. And I'm sort of more comfortable making something that feels like it's about my brain as opposed to about my face, I guess, if that's a, a sort mm -hmm. of metaphor that is understood. And as a final question, as we reflect on this journey, mate, what has it taught you about yourself? What? All of this it. This podcast? Sorry? No, no, not the podcast. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be as narcissistic to ask you that. <laughs> what has the journey into the arts and doing everything you've done taught you about yourself? Um, I don't really know what it's taught me about myself. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still learning. I don't really know. Still working it out, mate. I think that it's weird going into this type of job and career because... It's like, I feel like if you're an accountant, you do your work all week. If you're competent and you do your job, you get paid and you have a nice weekend. Whereas like something like this, it's like you do your job, you do it competently, then you put it out. And then you've got this whole other period of the job that is unpaid where people decide whether or not 
you're a complete fraud and an idiot and not interesting or they're or you're amazing and you deserve a bunch of awards and like there's a bit of yourself in everything you put out and it's really scary because you do your job you get paid and then you have to have people sort of judging this really personal part of yourself that you've kind of given to the world which is like it's quite um difficult it's a lot of vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah. difficult yeah. mental health journey if you're putting things out in the world that are mm. to be consumed and given that then did it teach you about vulnerability and testing the waters yeah i think you have to try to not be vulnerable when you do something like this you have to try to sort of except when you put something out into the world that isn't good and deserves criticism you have to be ready for feedback you have to be ready to not make it about you you know not consider everything as uh yeah i think a good way to not be vulnerable is to not make everything personal we've talked about hayden the writer director producer and former political prankster i want to talk about your own mental health journey now hayden so i ask all my special guests this question first can you tell me about early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences who's the hayden we meet here early mental health i mean yeah i mean i've had like sort of bad diagnosed ocd from a very young age so that was always my journey i think like very high anxiety levels and all that sort of stuff what form did the OCD take? What kind of intrusive like, thoughts? Lots of, yeah, no, lots of rituals, very young. Mm, okay. Yeah, so that's kind of, OCD is a weird one. It kind of can become part of your life and sort of sticks around and normalises itself. And I think, yeah, that's been my big thing. Were you able to vocalise it at the time? Or did the thoughts you were having feel so alien? Like a lot of people who talk to me about OCD say that because the thoughts are so irrational that you just couldn't tell someone about it. Yeah, it was hard to tell people about it because it was super weird. There was a period where I couldn't like touch anyone else on the right side of my body at school because I would become them and I had to touch everybody again on the left with my oh, wow. left side, apart from one or two people in my whole school. And then you'd keep it a secret and then eventually like other kids would be like, Why are you touching me like that? And then you'd be super you'd have like an anxiety. It'd be a cycle. They're gonna yeah. find out, they're gonna find out. Yeah, yeah. I'm such yeah. a weirdo, yeah. Yeah. A lot of my guests who have spoken about OCD have talked about puro, which is a quite intense form. They've talked about having things like homosexual OCD or pedophilia OCD and these really horrific OCDs mm. to think about. So for you, was it just around rituals or did it end up branching into other areas of your life? For me, it was very ritual based. I had like a whole system, but it became later on, it, it's sort of like, even when I kind of was a bit older and had stopped doing the crazy rituals and accounting systems and looking at the sky guy, which was one of my things. Uh, it's super weird. You can imagine. You don't it sounded like a, a bird or a parrot there. I don't know what that was. year old on a date going, <laughs> just got to do my ritual. Give me a second. But it then becomes, it sort of normalizes itself. It becomes part of your life. So, you know, a lot of health freak outs, you know, being convinced you have this disease or that disease. Yeah, a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a complicated one, OCD, because it's quite insidious because you can kind of think it's a normal thought when it's actually OCD and you have to be able to kind of like determine what's what. When it comes to OCD and, and things like ADHD, I found that a lot of creative people have actually had the propensity to have them or, or traits, certainly. Have you ever been able to channel it creatively? OCD? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess sort of the obsessiveness has been quite useful for my creative process. You know, it allows you to sort of sit and do something obsessively, which is quite useful. Have you developed any tools in later life to manage it or perhaps even overcome it? Yeah, I think just really basic stuff around like eating well and living a healthy lifestyle and kind of giving yourself the kind of like physical structure and stability to deal with mental health problems is super important and underrated in terms of mental health I think a lot of people go to therapy first and then later down the line they start going to the gym and eating the right things I don't know mm -hmm. like I feel like that is the building blocks that kind of give you the support to there's a lot you can deal with just by being physically and healthy I think it, like no matter how bad your situation is like gives you the capacity to feel like you can overcome 
the main part of your mental health journey you want to discuss is your relationship with alcohol. So tell me about this and how it's impacted your mental health in the various points when you were in the throes of your fame and now in your later years. Yeah, I, just, I think I had a, you know, I sort of had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and was sort of drinking too much to deal with my own emotions and then stopped and felt a lot better as a, as a result of it. And yeah, it's funny because you don't really get taught much about that stuff at school, I think, or as you grow up. And alcohol is a super, sort of super foundational part of our society. And I think there's not enough understanding and thought around its impact because it's such a powerful drug. It's a panacea as well. Like it gets rid of all your problems and for a short time, yeah, for a very short time, yeah. And for that reason, it's really easy for people to kind of slip into it as a way of not addressing like deeper problems and anxieties. And that's something I certainly had is very, very deep anxieties. And that's why it was such a sort of a kind of medicinal thing almost for me. And it's weird as well that you know there's all this sort of research around psychedelics and and the impacts on people's mental health now and you're still in a situation in this country where mushrooms are class a drugs it's so odd because part of my journey for getting off alcohol was and everything and stopping smoking and just being super healthy were, were psychedelic mushrooms and like you know microdosing them and and like going on a bit of a journey and it kind of made me a much more sensitive empathetic empathetic person who was capable of dealing with his own shit and more balanced yeah yeah and like it's just so odd that a government that makes these incredible organisms illegal does not care about the well-being of its population it's so mad that we're in this world where you can go out and buy a fucking bottle of whiskey and drink yourself to death and sweat yourself to death but you can't go out and buy some psychedelic organisms that grow naturally in a forest that I think they saved my life in many ways and I think it's mental to me that that they're illegal. What did you learn about your mind as you've very eloquently put it and your body during this period? Just that I think being able to endure and overcome stuff and sitting with stuff and being okay with it and knowing that it'll pass is something that is super important to learn on any mental health journey and like It's actually the thing you get taught with OCD is it's like you have an anxiety, you have a compulsion to kind of do a ritual, like to go whatever it is to like make sure something terrible doesn't happen to your parents or whatever. And you're taught to sort of sit with it and it passes. And like that's actually also the journey I think with mental health is that like, you know, if you can learn systems to kind of deal with your own anxieties and problems that don't involve a dependency on drugs or alcohol, then you are becoming resilient, you're becoming anti-fragile. And I think that's really important. And as a final question, before we finish with our quick fire questions, mate, if you could go back and talk to the Hayden who was getting into near confrontations with Alistair Campbell on Revolution Will Be Televised, or perhaps the Hayden who was struggling to find purpose before his career, or the Hayden who was maybe taking those psychedelics and figuring out some Joe Rogan DMT style epiphanies, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think I would say, I don't know what I would say. Uh, Breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Breathe. Do some Wim Hof. Oh, don't bring up Wim Hof on this podcast, mate. (laughs) Why is he always shouting? He's always shouting. Those bloody ice baths, mate. I'm and sick of breathe it. in and breathe out. Yeah. I saw a, a meme and it was like, yeah, tell me to stop having hot showers and let me take away the few good things in my life. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm not getting rid of a hot, hot shower, mate. <laughs> I'm going for a cold swim in a minute, actually. See, a cold swim I can get on more on board with because it's a, yeah. you know, more of a one-off thing and it's a, it's a you know, step out of your comfort yeah. zone. A cold shower in the yeah. morning, I'm not doing sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah no fair enough in the morning actually that's pretty horrible i think yeah don't do that do it in the afternoon our final topic of conversation hayden and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health mate it's pretty good right now actually yeah it's pretty good i am 42 year old middle-aged man and single which is probably... Uh, you don't look 42, mate. You don't look 42. Which is, um, yeah, kind of difficult, I guess. But like, I'm sort of like dealing with it and managing it. I don't know. It's actually up and down. It's actually like some days it's really good. Some days it's kind of difficult. And I'm sort of like 
just adapting and trying to work out new ways to kind of deal with it and learning about myself and learning to respect my feelings about myself and trying to go easy on myself. And that's where I'm at. Brilliant, mate. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? About two years ago. (laughs) And was it an epiphany or more of a gradual realization? I don't really know. I mean, I just think it's a journey, isn't it? I don't know the answer even to this day. I don't know. I I sort of oscillate. Sometimes I think to myself, the best thing I can possibly do for my mental health is just to force everything down and suppress it all and just crack on. (laughs) It's not always the best route, mate. (laughs) Which is not a trendy uh, opinion I appreciate, but I don't know. Sometimes I genuinely feel like talking about shit doesn't help. and um, Sometimes it doesn't. That's true. Yeah. And like the best thing I can do is forget about it and distract myself with something else. Hmm. It's like distraction is underestimated, you know. As long as it works for you, mate. That's what I always say. As long as it always, as long as it works for you. Can you tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And on the one hand, did it feel like a big burden or weight of lift off your shoulders? Or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I mean, when I was like seven, eight years old at the Maudsley Hospital for my OCD, I was like, yeah, getting diagnosed and stuff. And yeah, having conversations there, I guess. So quite early. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a particular sensation, being in a social environment. I know that from our chat off air that lack of sleep was one for you. Yeah, also like, it's funny how you don't realise, I think, until you're a bit older, the impact that social relationships have on your mental health and when the people that are super close to you are difficult or challenging or cruel it's very simple if people around you are nice to you and kind to you and are looking after you generally your mental health will be a lot better than if not and like yeah I think like you can kind of go through long periods of your life surrounding yourself with people that are sort of making you feel very mentally ill and you're not acknowledge it and not be aware of it and I think it's important there's a big thing right now about isn't there like sort of like getting toxic people out of your life and yeah that's probably good for some people and I think but I think it's what again it's more nuanced than that isn't it it's like cutting people out of your life as well as can be super traumatic so Mm. it's sort of being conscious of people's impact on you and trying to work out the impact that they have on you and being able to articulate and express to them in a calm way how they're affecting you and trying to sort of curate your experience quite carefully as you move through the world and saying to yourself if I go out on Friday night with these people then is that going to make me feel good or am I going to feel a lot better if I go and do this instead and sort of just being very conscious of what you surround yourself with like your diet what positive tools, conversely, then, do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? For me, talking to friends, having people around you that you can talk to about things is super important when you feel bad. Exercise, breathing, and cold baths. Ice baths. Back, back to Wim Hof. Back to Wim get, Hof. In an ice bath, all your problems are gone. Like that. It's magic. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help or mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be fiction. And if you can't think of a book, a film, a play, podcast or whatever. I think Anti-Fragile, Nicholas Taleb, because it just taught me a quite profound lesson, I think, about what it means to be anti-fragile, not just resilient. So the way he describes it is you have fragility on one side. In the middle, you have resilience, which is not getting impacted by stuff and sort of coming out of something relatively unscathed. And then you stay the same. And then anti-fragility anti- is when anti- you change anti- after it. Yeah, yeah you, you improve. Challenges improve you. And um, I just think that's quite a constructive way to approach mental health. Like, mm. Think of it as a challenge that's going to make you a better machine. 100%. It's why I talk a lot about anti-fragility on this podcast many times. I've got two questions left. First one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? um breathe breathe (laughs) (laughs) breathe okay yeah and as a final question and this is a broad one 
what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it yeah i think there is a big there's a bit of a mental health crisis among men isn't there right now and you've seen that you see that with the andrew tate thing right it's like it's mad that like there are so few po- like male role models that are positive and speaking to young men that someone like Andrew Tate becomes so popular. It's like there's, there's just a vacuum there, yeah. the total vacuum. And well, Jordan Peterson um, tried to fill it and he got shunned. So. Jordan Peterson, yeah. Well, he's yeah. sort of. I mean, he's sort of. I feel like he is a good male role model to a lot of people now. Again, he he is, but he gets highly, highly criticised for his work and yeah. I feel like I don't agree That's... with everything Jordan Peterson says 100% I think he's become unfortunately a little bit of a mm. self-parody in recent times but both his books the meaning of his books if you actually read them are self-responsibility or personal yeah. responsibility ownership sorting yourself out and mm. being a good person before you criticize others essentially yeah. that's what it is yeah it's basic stuff isn't it personal yeah. responsibility is a, is a big thing and it's funny that the right have owned that issue and i think sad that people couldn't disassociate jordan peterson's other politics from his mental health work because like you may disagree with him on trans issues or you may disagree with him on immigration or whatever but like there's still a solid lesson to be learned around like keeping your room tidy and yeah looking after yourself and taking personal responsibility but it's interesting because i think actually like a lot of it is language games right like wittgenstein like i mean that's probably a bit of a tangential reference but like Actually, what Russell Brand was saying five, six years before was the same thing. Because Russell Brand, I don't know if you remember, was all about like the spiritual journey. And his thing was like, you have to take responsibility for your own spirituality before you can change the world. There's very little difference between that and what Jordan Peterson is saying. But Russell Brand was sort of seen as this sort of left wing guru whereas Jordan Peterson became a right-wing guru but really it's the same message it's just, it's about a spiritual journey and it's about looking after yourself and taking care of your metaphorical room your mind and, and your physical surroundings first mm. and being a person that you respect in the world as a way of trying to actualize change mm. I think an important point as well that I took from John Peterson's work is once you've sorted out your mental health you can protect others who are more vulnerable you know, I talk a lot about masculinity on this podcast and I feel like I've centered my own version of masculinity to some degree. But I also feel like now I've secured my mental health state to a large degree. Obviously, I've still got stuff to work on, but I, I almost feel like I can support others in a better way now and especially yeah. support other men who yeah. might not be in the best position or might have special educational needs. or you know, Do you know what I mean? And you, you see yourself in that role more, I think. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely that's a good sort of motivation for people to kind of sort out their mental health. It's like, don't just do it for yourself, do it for others. It is that you're right, because I'm much more there for my family now that I'm and my friends now that my mental health is more is better. It's a really good reason because I think people also sometimes struggle to do things for themselves. It feels sort of like egotistical or narcissistic to go and talk about your mental health a lot to, to other people. But yeah, do it for others, do it for your community. So you can be someone that can be supportive that's what i try to be so Mm. that's the lessons that i took and trying to be more proactive in life like i think there's one of his lessons that says like if there's a gap in i'm probably misquoting but he says that one of his rules is if there's a gap in a responsibility you know step up and do it Mm. because it'll serve you better you know if there's a role that someone's you know missed out on you can put yourself forward for it even if it doesn't work you know try and try and do it for yourself yeah i think that's a good lesson my favorite quote of his is that an idea is a personality. It's not a fact, which is what I try and use when people kind of tell me about their irrational thoughts. And I'm always like an idea is a personality. It's not a fact. It doesn't mean that it's true. So it's quite mm. good. At, it's quite good at from a CBT perspective as well. Yeah. What's so a don't think of your feelings as facts. Is that yes. What, right. Yeah. They can change. It's true. Mm. On that note, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation, mate. Hayden Prowse, thank you so much for coming on Real Stories and talking to me. Cheers. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Real Stories. I want to say a big thank you to Hayden for being my special guest on this episode and for telling me his real story. Hayden has been a dream guest of mine for several years and I'm so pleased he took the time to check in with me. 
As always, I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share across social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Give us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. You can make one-off donation to our GoFundMe if you don't want to do that, or you can buy a Vent t-shirt, or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, take two, on Saturday, the 15th of April, 2023, at the Victoria in Dalston. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. Stay tuned for the next episode of Real Stories. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Behind.